welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Well, welcome. And today I'm speaking to Professor George Williams, who is one of Australia's leading constitutional lawyers, and he's Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Professor of Law at the University of New South Wales. So welcome to Afternoon Light, George. It's a pleasure to be here. And we've, we've brought you on today because on the 22nd of September 2021, we will celebrate or commemorate the 70th anniversary of the failed referendum to ban the Communist Party in Australia. And you, as a constitutional lawyer, and obviously have written a lot about referenda and mainly they fail. I think only eight out of the, um, oh, what is it, 44 referenda we've had in Australia? 44. 44. My constitutional law history is good. (laughs) Uh, Only eight have have succeeded. They are notoriously difficult to... um, to get up. In fact, Robert Menzies on reflection of the failed attempt to ban the Communist Party in 1951 through this referendum, he said, to get affirmative votes from the Australian people on a referendum proposal is one of the labours of Hercules. So he recognised it was no mean feat and it was a feat that defeated him. But George, I wanted to start our discussion today by asking you about why did Robert Menzies want to ban the Communist Party in, in 1951? And in fact, he tried to do it in 1940 as well. That's right. And this had a long history to it. And there are a number of reasons why he personally was motivated to do this. One, without doubt, was that he saw communism as a threat to Australia. And uh, We need to put ourselves in the shoes of leaders and other people at this time emerging from the horrors of World War II, um, immensely fearful of what might follow. The development of nuclear weapons around the world was proceeding apace and the rapid rise of the Soviet Union was something that was seen as a major threat to free Western nations around the world. And Australia, of course, was not seen as immune to that threat. And to give you a sense of how pressing it was seen, at one point Robert Menzies suggested that World War III was on the horizon and he warned Australians that uh, we could yet embark upon another horrific world war, this time potentially with even more devastating weapons. And he was fearful that this ideology itself was taking root in Australia, that there was a fifth column, that we might, even if not defeated by an external threat, that perhaps our institutions might be eroded and undermined by communism within. Uh, He pointed particularly at the union movement, but on a number of occasions he pointed directly at the opposition, um, the Labor Party itself, as being, according to one Liberal member, a transmission belt uh, for communists uh, entering Australia. There was also another, I think, more base political reason as well, and that was that uh, he recognised, and of course as a really canny and effective leader, that this was an enormously difficult issue for the Labor Party. In fact, the party was split. Uh, on the one hand, you had members of the Labor Party who really wanted to see communism destroyed. On the others, you had those who felt there were principles at stake here and weren't prepared to support it. 
And uh, I think in our history, there was probably no more effective wedge played in Australian political history than communism by Robert Menzies. And indeed, his tackling of communism really laid the foundation for many of his subsequent electoral successes. So it was a classic instance of policy and politics combining for him with devastating effect. Menzies was a, a staunch supporter of and believer of Parliament, wasn't he? I mean, he he saw it as the the ultimate demonstration of the democratic will of the people, and and that the politicians were servants to the Australian people. The Australian people were their masters, and he was a fervent defender of of free speech. But there's a there's a, some tensions here, aren't there, when it comes to his efforts to ban the Communist Party? Obviously, there were were very serious security concerns. And as you said, in the um, particular individuals in the trade union movement were of concern. While Menzies was able to to name some of these individuals, he wasn't able to articulate a lot of the evidence because, of course, course it had come from very secret security operations. and, And he said to provide the public with the evidence why these people were of such grave concerns to Australian security would be to to then betray the the sources of intelligence that uh, ASIO was was using to get to get to uh, the heart of the communist infiltration into Australia so these tensions then between someone who was committed to the rule of law he was a, a, a fantastic barrister before going into parliament and and you know, very very much committed to parliament and and uh, and free speech and and freedoms in general but then to be launching a campaign to you know without a lot of necessarily due process and respect for the rule of law or at least an ability to demonstrate to the public why these individuals were particularly going to pose a threat to Australia or evidence of their threat. was must have been a, a massive tension for him philosophically, don't you think? Well, there was no doubt there was some very, very large tensions for him, as you suggested. But the political opportunity was very large. And, of course, if nothing else, that means he was a formidable politician. And he recognised the upside for him in this debate. But the tensions included the fact that his own legislation would have done away with due process in actually forcing people to prove their innocence. Um, It actually said in the legislation that uh, if you want to show you weren't a a communist, you bore the onus of showing you were not a communist. And that's a complete reversal of how the system is meant to work. And, in fact, his legislation, the Communist Party Dissolution Bill, targeted people uh, based upon their beliefs. You didn't need to do anything wrong. You could simply believe in communism, and that was sufficient. And the definition of communism was pretty vague. It actually would have encompassed a number of Labor politicians and members of the union movement. And one particularly heated debate means he's actually suggested that he would seek to ban uh, a member of the opposition in Parliament. And that showed how deeply this went within the Labor Party in their fear uh, and also the effectiveness of the tactic. And you're right about that issue of evidence because the evidence was pretty thin. I mean, this was a debate about fear, ultimately. I mean, the fear of the Soviet Union, the fear of Australia being destabilised. But at the time and subsequently, it was clear that the, the hyperbole and rhetoric was never really made out by the evidence. And that's because there really never was a likelihood that Australia was going to be overthrown from within. I mean, yes, there were communists, yes, there were destabilisers, but never in sufficient numbers, never having the military might, if nothing else, to actually overthrow the nation. And yet that was the rhetoric at the time. 
mean, Menzies did attempt to name communists, but even that went awry on occasions. In his second reading speech introducing his legislation, he named 53 people who he said were prominent communists in positions of authority in Australia. But actually later on he had to admit that five of them uh, weren't communists at all. He got it wrong. And to show how easy it was to get wrong, uh, the City Morning Herald ran an article the next day with photos of these supposed communists and actually got one of the photos wrong. Instead of putting someone from the Federated Clerks Union, they included the Deputy Commissioner of Taxation in that person's photo. And it shows just how difficult it is. Once you start labelling people, it gets tricky. And this was a debate a lot about rhetoric, fear, political advantage, and, uh, you know, Menzies undoubtedly knew about some of these tensions but was willing to take advantage of them. Yeah, well, and as you said earlier, as such was the concern about the threat of a, a World War Three between the United States and the Soviet Union and, and how that might come to Australian shores. There were genuine security concerns at that time, um, but, of course, yeah, there was a certain political advantage to this. So Labor... The Labor Party was was split on this issue, but but ultimately, when Menzies put up the Communist Party Dissolution Act in 1950, the Labor Party, in the end, after after rejecting it in the Senate the first time, when it came back for a second a second attempt, they did they did acquiesce and and pass it. But but it was it it was challenging for them, wasn't it? And obviously, in by 1955, the Labor Party finally splits and and then you know the rest is history um, Menzies Menzies basically was prime minister for as long as he wanted to be until his his choice in 1966 in retirement well that's right I'm not sure the Labor Party has ever dealt with a more difficult issue in opposition than this particular bill because it went to the heart of the movement and uh, in the minds of many people it was not much of a line between a socialist and a communist and many Labor members were socialists and, and in government the Labor Party had attempted to ban, uh, sorry, to nationalise the banking system just back in 1947, which at that point Menzies had suggested was uh, redolent of communism. Yet on the other hand, you had many prominent Labor members speaking so powerfully against the bill. You had the opposition leader Ben Chifley, for example, who said if this bill was passed, it opens the door for the liar, the perjurer and the pimp to make charges and damn men's reputations and to do so in secret without having either to substantiate or prove any of the charges they might make. And he was right about what the bill would have done. So there's a point of principle here for the Labor Party. So they were were really riven between those against communism, those for principle, those who might be communists, those who weren't. The union movement itself was subject to communist infiltration. So it was immensely problematic. And in the end, it was resolved um, because the federal executive of the Labor Party intervened. And this, again, played into Lenz. That's right, later. So it played into Menzies' own statement later about the, the faceless men of the Labor Party. And the federal executive directed their parliamentarians to let the legislation through Parliament. It was called the Chicken Resolution. And uh, so their own, if you like, their own uh, bureaucracy said, you've just got to let this through. But that didn't really resolve the tensions, but it did give Menzies his parliamentary win and the bill was enacted. But then swiftly it was challenged in the High Court, wasn't it? And Dr Evatt, who took over upon Chifley's death as leader of the Labor Party, he, he was an eminent barrister as well. He, he actually acted on behalf of the challenges in one of the cases. I think there were eight cases brought in the High Court to challenge the validity of the 
Dissolution Act, saying it was unconstitutional. Why? And and in the end, the High Court found six one, didn't it? That um, that the Dissolution Act was unconstitutional. What were the reasons for that? Well, and firstly, you're right about Evatt's involvement. I mean, at the point he took the brief, he was the deputy um, leader of the Labor Party, and it was a shock, a massive shock, that he had taken this brief. I mean, as one person stated, even within the Labor Party itself, the New South Wales president of the Labor Party said Evatt's acceptance of the brief was ethically correct, professionally sound and politically very, very foolish <laughs> Which because is it played def- into Menzies' hands. Yeah, and and probably defined his his political life. While he was a, an exceptional legal mind, his political instincts were, were fairly poor throughout his career. Well, and again, this is one among many examples of Menzies taking advantage of that and uh, Everett essentially on basis of firm principles for which he is widely remired, walking into a political trap. And indeed at the following election, um, after this case, in in Tasmania, for example, the slogan of the Liberal Party was Menzies or Moscow, (laughs) or in Everett's own seat, he was opposed by Nancy Wake, the World War II hero, whose slogan was, I am the defender of freedom. Dr Everett is the defender of communism. So, again, it shows you the, somewhat the hysteria, the, the slogan hearing, but Everett argued that case and he won. I mean, this is arguably the most famous, the most important High Court decision handed down and it is arguably Everett's greatest ever triumph um, as a political figure, notably not as a politician but as a lawyer because he managed to convince the court that this particular piece of legislation was a danger that was not justified under the defence power, despite the fact that our troops were engaged in Korea. And uh, he managed in a really careful forensic examination to show that this would have transferred power unreasonably to the Commonwealth, to Menzies, without the proper checks and balances. And the High Court, including the many judges appointed by the Liberal Party in the past, basically agreed and said that uh, this was beyond the pale for our democratic system and vested powers that could not be constitutionally given at this time. And so hence you had the 6-1 result, but the only dissenter being uh, Latham, a former leader (laughs) of uh, the Conservative parties himself. But uh, 6-1, decisive loss for Menzies, and and a big win in the courts for Evatt, even though it was a pyrrhic victory for his own political aspirations. Well, that that's right, and uh, and Menzies then went on to call a double dissolution, not on the basis of the the Dissolution Act, the Communist Party Dissolution Act that had obviously been passed on a bill that had failed to pass twice through the Parliament uh, relating to the Commonwealth Bank, but the the double dissolution election uh, wasn't fought on the issue of the Commonwealth Bank. No, it was fought on the issue of uh, Menzies in Menzies' terms, the Communist menace, and he won and he got got control of both Houses of Parliament. He did then try to get the states on board to um, allow him more powers to ban the Communist Party. And the states, I think most of the states at that time were, were led by Labor governments, so they, they didn't fall into line. So then he he introduced the referendum bill to, um, and that, that took place on the 22nd of September 1951. And like, as we were saying before, like uh, most referenda, it failed. But it was a close run thing, wasn't it? I think the yes vote still won uh, 49.44% of the national vote, but it was only approved by three states, Queensland, Tasmania and Western Australia. But at the beginning of the campaign, it looked like the referendum was going to pass. There was a lot of support for the yes case to amend the 
constitution. Um, what what was Menzies actually seeking specifically to do when it came to amending the constitution? What Menzies wanted to do was put a new clause in the constitution that would have enabled the federal parliament to make laws with respect to communists or communism as parliament deems necessary and it also would have enabled the immediate enactment of the Communist Party Dissolution Act that the High Court had just overturned. Um, And it was a very dangerous referendum because uh, what it would have done is normally when the Commonwealth has powers, they're subject to all sorts of checks and balances in this constitution. But those were explicitly removed. There's no clause there to say these powers are subject to the constitution. So it would have given the broadest available power to Parliament and... uh, in doing so could have enabled all sorts of laws that might have restricted speech, belief and the like. And it was a really, I mean, a really forceful intervention that would have inserted something very different and very troubling in our constitution. It would have concreted in, if you like, a McCarthyite power uh, referencing the US system. But Menzies was determined and he believed this is what was needed, I suspect, both to solve the issue, to get the powers he needed, but also it put even more pressure on the Labor Party. But in this case, again, Evett came out, now the leader of the opposition, and he said, I'm going to oppose this, and he fought the campaign against Menzies. Yeah, it's um, an interesting, for a lawyer, as Menzies was originally, um, it's an interesting tactic to, to go down the referendum avenue. I mean, our constitution, as you very, very well know, is a, is a technical document. It doesn't have those sort of rather grand statements about our values and beliefs like the United States constitution has. It is pretty technical. To insert something that relates to a point in time, a particular political ideology, would have surely to Menzies have been passing strange. I mean, it just wouldn't have suited the the tenor of the constitution. It was uh, must have been somewhat of a leap for him as a as a leap with his legal background to uh, to take this to take this approach. Well, it, it very much it would have been something very alien to our constitution, which otherwise has nothing which would have so easily permitted restrictions of belief, speech and the like. And, of course, Menzies knew that. Um, but perhaps by this point he was so personally invested in this. He had lost the High Court case. He felt strongly. He was on record as saying we need this to protect the nation. He saw World War Three perhaps as around the corner. But also he perhaps correctly recognised that, I mean, you want this debate to go on as long as possible. The longer it goes on, the more damage that is done to the Labor Party and to the opposition leader. And what's really notable about this is, you know, Evett won ultimately this and the referendum was defeated. Evett won at every stage. He won in the High Court. He won the poll for the people. But even though he won every battle, he lost the war. He never became Prime Minister. The Labor Party split in 1955. The Democratic Labor Party, the anti-communist offshoot of Labor, was very effective in denying Labor the votes it needed to form government in subsequent elections. And I think also Evett saved Menzies in one respect because if this referendum had actually been passed, it would have really tarnished Menzies' reputation as someone who put in our constitution something so deeply inappropriate for our Western, our liberal tradition. So Evett actually saved Menzies and his reputation to some respect. I mean, even John Howard said uh, a couple of decades ago when he was Prime Minister, he thinks the people got it right in rejecting Menzies' attempt to change the constitution. And, in fact, many people who opposed Menzies at this point and his referendum were future Liberal ministers who said it's just against our Liberal ideals to put something like this in the Constitution. So Menzies was fortunate, I think, this was lost on many fronts, 
because it would not have been a positive part of his legacy if this had been enacted. Yeah, it, it's a, an interesting interpretation. I mean, Evert, of course, as as deputy leader, lost the double dissolution prior to the to the referendum. So he, you know, he's losing when it when it counts in a in a way politically counts. But then, as you said, he he wins he wins these legal major legal challenges and and legal questions put to the Australian people. I'd like to ask you to reflect on why you think the Australian people rejected the referendum. Percy Josky, who was a Liberal Member of Parliament at the time, he said on reflection of, of Menzies' failure to get the Australian people to, to support the, the constitutional change through the referendum, that Menzies had shown a failure to understand the Australian people and their appreciation both of freedom and of the rule of law, and that there was a concern that the referendum if if accepted that well, the question if accepted and the constitutional change if accepted could then give the government power that could be used for dictatorial purposes that people could be as you said before declared communists even if they weren't um there was that real sort of executive declaratory power there that that was going to mean that the courts had little avenue uh, well individuals had little avenue to challenge this in in the court process but I mean, we, 70 years ago, it's hard, it's hard for neither of us were born then, it's hard for us to imagine what the public debate really was like living and breathing it. But, but casting your mind back to that time and, and reflecting on why do you think the Australian people did reject it? Is it, is it a, a natural Australian conservatism? It was a it was a brilliant campaign waged by Everett. I mean, he wasn't known for being a brilliant campaigner, so I I wonder if that was that was the case. Was it just natural Australian conservatism that doesn't really like change unless there's a an absolutely compelling case for it? And of course, there's many reasons. Partly, it's the campaigning. I mean, Menzies gave Everett a three week head start in their campaign, which Menzies came to regret and. And it was suggested if he hadn't given Everett that start, perhaps, you know, he might have won a very, very close referendum. I think also it was the problem for Menzies that in a battle of fear, and this was fear on both sides, fear of communism or fear of giving the government to power, ultimately the latter became the more um, decisive. And you've got to remember, again, after World War II, people had just gone through rationing. There was fear about Hitler, the rise of authoritarianism, all sorts of things. The argument for Everett, Everett and others was that you passed this and you were laying the foundations for a totalitarian state in Australia. And those overstated, without a doubt, but there were many campaigners who compared Menzies to Hitler in terms of Hitler's rise and Menzies' rise. And, you know, that tapped into a different set of fears within Australia, which became more powerful. I think also Menzies overplayed his hand at a number of points. I mean, in his public rallies, for example, he often talked about anyone who opposed this was a communist. In, for example, in City Hall in Brisbane at one rally, he declared it's wonderful that the only real supporters of the no case in this campaign are communists and the hangers-on. And so his attempt to label everyone who opposed him as a communist again started to worry people because the reality is that many people who are drifting to the no campaign hated communism, were the main opponents of communism, but actually they just couldn't put up with what they saw as this sort of totalitarian overstep. And so, you know, you found by the end of it that many of the most fervent haters of communism actually were opposing the referendum uh, for their own reasons. Archbishop Mannix from uh, Melbourne 
no, a staunch anti-communist. He he actually sided with the no case in the end. So there was a... Means he's overplayed his hand, I yeah, think, as a result. That's yeah. right. Both politically and legally overplayed his hand. Evert, and this was, this was Evert's greatest hour, and Evert said he regarded this as more important than a half dozen general elections. I'm not sure <laughs> if he did it retrospective as the years passed, but no. there was a key point of principle, and this was about what sort of nation we are. And on this one, I think Menzies was on the wrong side of things as people have recognised and was probably saved by the result, by his own poor campaigning, overstepping the mark, and the fact that people were more fearful of a totalitarian Australian government than they were of communism. Yeah, quite extraordinary. But that, that sort of idea that you're either with us or against us and you're totally against us if you're not with us, um, it, it reminds me of, of the sort of, you know, Hillary Clinton calling all those who opposed her deplorables. That that. You know, if you're trying to bring people on a journey with you, people who are perhaps suspicious of your point of view or, you know, undecided, you then start to paint them as, well, they're com- completely unacceptable, the position they have, if it's not exactly the position I hold. That can alienate things. That can really, really backfire as it as it, as it it did. Although only just, only just. Uh, it still was very much a line ball result. Uh, 49.44% of people agreed with Menzies in the end. So, Well, that's right. But many people saw this as the loser of the referendum. I mean, Menzies went in with 80% support for this um, and it was whittled down by 30% by the poll. Um, and it just shows, you know, how telling in this instance the campaigning period was, both ineffectiveness of the S case losing 30% and the effectiveness of evidence in the no case. Uh, but also it did tap into a nerve that uh, in the end um, many people said this is basically inconsistent with British traditions of justice, liberalism and the like that Menzies himself was seeking to espouse. So as much as this was a wedge for the Labor Party, this was also a bit of a wedge for Menzies too in terms of wedging his hatred of communism with his own strong beliefs and values. That's right, that's right. A A huge tension for him. I wanted to finish off, George, by asking you what you think the legacy of this referendum has been for Australia. And there's obviously a legacy when it comes to the Labor Party and its and its history subsequent to this referendum. There's the issue of what happened to the Communist Party after all in Australia. I mean, not not a force at all, basically, these days. And then the legacy for Menzies and the legacy for the character of Australia's Australia's democracy too. I think there's there's so many interesting lessons we can draw from this and, and that live to this day. And there are, and this is this is one of the more important moments in our national history because there are so many consequences from this. One is politically that it laid the foundation for Menzies to become our most longest serving Prime Minister. His defeats in the High Court and in the referendum gave him the tools with which to defeat the Labor Party. You can think of the Petrov affair a few years later, the split of the Labor Party, in fact, going through all the way to 1972 for different different governments. So that's a massive legacy in itself. Another one was, yes, the legacy for the Labor Party, which became split and electorally simply non-competitive for many years. But when it comes to the Constitution, we didn't get in the Constitution something that would have been deeply troubling for us as a nation and very much, I think, inconsistent with values about freedom of belief. But when it comes to the High Court, this was a signature moment in the High Court. It struck down a measure that was wildly popular electorally at the time, in doing so asserting its independence and preeminent role in interpreting the Constitution. 
So, so there are many, I think, and indeed you can look at these through contemporary events such as the fight against terrorism, where a lot of these things resonate, the banning of parties, organisations and the like, and you can see that, uh, you know, these in the world in which we live to continue to raise important lessons about, I think, not overreacting and making sure that the politics does not overtake the community interest in how you deal with troubling internal and external threats. Yeah, and I think reflecting on the importance that Australians hold for freedom of speech too and association, that um, obviously there's a, a clear unacceptance of, of of people trying to do harm to our democracy and our, and our country men and women. But, but to speak freely about your beliefs, to challenge a government, to challenge authority in, in, in at least in speech, um, is, is something that Australians think is acceptable. And this was a, a classic example of, um, you know, people disagreeing with, with what people thought, but, but fighting to the death to preserve their right to say it. I, I think Voltaire I think there's said. a lot in that. Yeah, that's, that's right. And I think there's a lot in that. And I think one of the key lessons is that in defending democracy and our rights, such as speech from ideology or external threats, it's a mistake to undermine those same rights. Yeah, to actually start to ban speech and belief because it's the wrong turning, the wrong path. In the end, we didn't need to do those things. And Australians got it right, I think, in this referendum. But we need to always remember that because in the heat of the moment, at moments of danger, it's always tempting for political leaders to look to ban things and restrict things. But that's not the right course, I think, as this episode shows. Yeah, the really, really um, important lessons for us today. And I think, you know, even reflecting on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 over the weekend on the um, on Saturday and the impacts that had on rule of law and, and what, what various governments around the world did on their domestic legal arrangements when it came to, to people questioning the government or having particular support for different different ways of life. There are really, really difficult questions in times of crisis, times of national crisis and where there are security concerns, that balance between protecting your nation's security but also protecting your way of life and values and rule of law, um, you know, wicked, wicked problems for, for governments and public policy leaders and lawyers, of course. But thank you so much for joining us on Afternoon Light, George. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learnt an enormous amount and uh, I think it is so very important that people take time to reflect on the 22nd of September at the 70th anniversary of this referendum and what it what it means for Australia in 2021 and beyond and uh, and how important history is to informing how we chart a course into the future as well as reflecting on what we got right and what we might not have got right in the past so thank you pleasure the Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you. Thank you.